0: Is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, and this is the full story, newsroom edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. As cost of living and interest rates rise, more and more Australians are feeling a squeeze on their budgets. The Albanese government is facing pressure to walk back their election promise to keep the Stage 3 tax cuts worth $243 billion, which were legislated under the Morrison government and which predominantly benefit the most wealthy Australians. In the middle of this looming economic crisis, Labor has made it clear that they have not changed their tax policy, but will put the economics before the politics. But the Liberal Party is winning any political points they can, accusing the government of crab-walking away from an election promise. So is this bad policy at a bad time, forcing Labor into bad politics? Or is it an election promise they should keep? Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Head of News Mike Tisha about whether Labor should cull the Stage 3 tax cuts. It's Friday, the 7th of October. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Gabs. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. The Stage 3 tax cuts were legislated in 2019, but everyone seems to be talking about it this week, Lenore. Why is that? Well, I mean, I
1: think the Labor Party had reservations when they supported the Stage 3 tax cuts in 2019. These are the tax cuts that are the part of the package that goes to the the higher income earners. And I guess they've come back onto the agenda for a couple of reasons. The economic circumstances have definitely changed since 2019 and have changed quite considerably since the election. The prospect of a global recession is very real. Inflation is increasing. Interest rates are going up in a way that the Reserve Bank actually told us they wouldn't. So, there's vastly different economic circumstances. And I guess what sort of opened a political window more than anything else was what happened in the UK when the Trust Administration brought down their first budget, which included unfunded tax cuts and the markets tanked, precipitated an enormous economic crisis. Now, I think that is more a political comparison than a direct economic one because these tax cuts in Australia are already legislated so they wouldn't surprise the markets and they're not due to kick in until the middle of 2024. But nevertheless, politically, that has sort of opened the debate here again and there were all these built-up reservations about whether this was really the right thing to do in the first place and that's all sort of come to the fore again.
0: So, Mike, what are the main arguments for keeping these legislated tax cuts?
2: Well, the main arguments for keeping them are, I guess, there are economic arguments and political arguments. The political ones are much easier to deal with in that. Labor supported them when they went through the parliament despite their reservations. They said before the election they would keep them. They went to the election saying they would keep them. So if they don't, then that would be a broken election promise, and they would be beaten about with the head over that for years by the coalition. So that's a, that's a fairly obvious argument against changing them. The economics is obviously more complicated.
0: So the people making the economic case to keep these tax cuts, what are they saying? The people who are
1: arguing for keeping them say reducing the tax burden on higher income earners has a sort of productivity and economy boosting effect. I don't buy that argument. I think the argument that spending the money instead on essential services and things like childcare or public transport or disability care Mm. has a much better economic effect. But those who are arguing to keep them make that argument as an economic argument. And there's the bracket creep argument, you know, which has a little bit of saliency in that you do have to, or the governments do periodically change tax rates when wages increase over time and push people into higher tax brackets and that usually involves some changes to the tax thresholds at the higher levels but this as far as I can see it goes far beyond that it doesn't just change the threshold at which the highest tax rate cuts in it flattens the tax rate and that would leave the 30 percent rate going all the way from forty five thousand dollar income all the way up to two hundred thousand So that's a big structural change to the tax system that goes beyond the adjustments that would have to be made over the next 10 years for bracket creep. I think that argument is, you know, plausible to a small degree but does not, I don't think, justify tax changes of this magnitude.
0: So what are the arguments against keeping these tax cuts then?
1: Well...
2: Budgetary arguments obviously one of the main problems with the tax cuts is that they were legislated so far in advance. So, there was this, this was went through the parliament in 2019, they don't come in until 2024. A lot can change in economics in five years, and in the last two years, particularly or three years, particularly, we've seen huge shocks to the economic system, most notably through the pandemic and the war in Ukraine. So, it's really foolish to make budget commitments that far in advance because circumstances changed massively over, over five years. And one of the circumstances that's changed is we spent a huge amount of money during the pandemic. Government debt has ballooned to almost a trillion dollars. This time last year, the Reserve Bank was saying interest rates wouldn't be going up this year, but as we know, they have gone up six times. And that has increased the amount of interest that the government has to pay on that extremely large debt. So even though the budgets are edging back towards a smaller deficits and ultimately surplus, that is going to take a huge amount of time to put a, a proper dent in that debt.
1: But the biggest argument against these tax cuts is this sort of the same as it was in 2019, just made more salient by the factors that Mike's talking about, and that is that they basically make our tax system Less progressive. They leave, over time, middle Australians picking up a greater share of the tax burden than higher income earners compared with what they do now. And that equity argument has been made, you know, across the board from the former Reserve Bank Governor Bernie Fraser, economists, some government backbenchers, welfare groups. Everybody can see that there are structural problems with the budget and that this is a bad time to make them worse when there are also massive spending demands, even though we have a big deficit, as Mike said. So, you know, when you think about the demands for spending on aged care or disability care, or even defence spending in this climate, the idea that you would sort of structurally weaken the budget seems to be very out of kilter with The times. And there's been all kinds of analyses making that point. You know, like the richest 1% of Australians will get as much benefit from these cuts as the poorest 65% combined. Now, given that this is the phase of the tax cuts that's meant to help better off Australians. That's sort of not surprising, but nevertheless, you know, an eye opening figure. It also means that men get a bigger benefit than women. And I think, you know, Jim Chalmers made the argument really nicely when Labor was trying to figure out whether they dared oppose them back in 2019. And then the government bundled all the stages of the tax cuts up together and made it sort of impossible or very difficult for Labor to change just this element of them. But he said that, you know, back then they were going to cost $20 billion a year, which was about what we're spending on aged care or public hospitals and more than we spend on the NDIS, twice as much as we'll spend on New Start or childcare this year. I mean, putting in those terms, and I think we did a, a data interactive to try to, in a very rough sense, let people understand how big a uh, deal the foregone revenue from these tax cuts would be over the next decade, say, and what other purposes that money could be put to. When you look at it that way and when you look at the sort of distributive effect of these tax cuts, then the equity argument is, I think, quite overwhelming.
2: The problem for the government in prosecuting that equity argument, though, is that if they did want to row back on the tax cuts, that might be the most attractive way of arguing for it. But the gains at the very top, if they just change the measures for the very highest income earners, which would be would speak most effectively to the equity argument, are likely to reap the not very much gains in revenue, mm. partly because it only affects a relatively small number of people, but also because those people... Are best at minimizing their tax. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of difference between 180,000 someone on 180,000 and someone on an actual median income. There's a huge amount of scope there, too, if you wanted to put in a threshold. Yeah. But if they want to just argue about their highest income earners, then they're not going to gain that much revenue from that, which if there's a small potential income return for a potentially large political deficit, and because they would still be breaking the promise they've made on the tax cuts.
1: But I think to what you said earlier, Mike, they're not going to break the promise holus bolus. They're not going to repeal these tax cuts. That would be politically suicidal. I mean, there is something to that. Like we do want politicians to keep their words and politicians have been penalised in the past quite heavily for not doing so. If you remember John Howard's core and non-core promises, you know, Julia Gillard didn't even really break a promise on the carbon tax and got excoriated for that. But I do think you can sort of see, a path through that might work for Labor. You know, there's talk around about shaving off some of the benefits for the highest income earners. And I saw the economist Chris Richardson was saying, you know, if they kept the 37% rate for incomes above $120,000, then that would mean everybody still got a tax cut, but the tax cut would be much less for people on those higher incomes. And it would still deliver... I don't know, like $9 billion a year to the budget, which is definitely not nothing. And I think some path through like that might be, a way where they could say, we are delivering tax cuts across the board, but we're just not delivering as much to the highest end in these circumstances given changed times. And the opposition's clearly limbering up. I mean, the opposition has been on the mat since the election. This is the first chance they've had to get up off the mat. Mm. So I think Nine's political correspondent, David Crow, I did write a very good opinion piece on this this week where he said, you know, it really comes down to the government trying to weigh up sound economics versus safe politics and figuring out where to compromise between the two of those things.
2: Mm. And the polling on this was fascinating, mm. the Australia Institute did a poll that came out this week, and which found that broadly more people were in favour of scrapping the tax cuts than were against it uh, by about two to one. But the really interesting part was that it was the people on higher incomes who were more in favour of mm-hmm. scrapping them than the mm. people on incomes below 80,000. So, what do you make of that?
1: <laughs> well, that goes to that's often the case, right? The aspirational idea, you know, people who probably realistically are aren't likely to make 180 or $200,000 a year in their careers but want to and don't want to think that they'll be penalised if they do.
0: And is the Liberal Party totally and the Nationals opposed to this scrapping or is there some dissent in the ranks? So far, a teeny bit of dissent. A while ago, Russell
1: Broadbent came out and said that the tax cuts should be reconsidered. Bridget Archer came out again in Guardian Australia on Thursday. But I think most people in the coalition are seeing this as a political opportunity, which, you know, for them, I guess it is.
0: A few economists have come out and said, look, let's take this opportunity to think about other taxes and, you know, negative gearing and the discount on capital gains tax has come up yet again. What's the likelihood of changes to those policies actually happening?
2: I think on those specific ones, just because Labor was burnt so badly at the 2019 election, on those unlikely Mm. But uh, Rod Sims, the former uh, head of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission on Thursday, was talking about a whole range of other taxes that he thought would be useful to bring in, in fact, saying specifically that Australia sort of maxed out on the possibilities of bringing in more revenue from income taxes but should be instead looking at the carbon tax, also unlikely given (laughs) Labor's previous experience, but road user taxes, land taxes and super profits taxes on the resources industry. So, you know, bold things that Labor would bulk at normally, but again, if they're going to do it, now is probably the best time to do it when commodity prices are high, resources companies are making huge profits, and the mood is there to slightly bolder tax policies than they've been able to put through before.
1: I think broadly what Rod Sims is saying makes sense as an economist, but, Mm. you know, really hasn't, made any inroads much since the election so if they were going to take a risk and this is a political risk now would be the time and by now I don't mean necessarily in the October budget it might be in the May budget but sometime in the next six months I mean is prepared to take a political risk.
2: It does seem like a short period of time since they went to the election promising they wouldn't do this, but if there was ever six months when you could argue that economic conditions have changed drastically in a very short period of time, then this is surely it.
1: This is it,
0: yeah. Next, I could tell you a joke about trickle-down economics, but 99% of you wouldn't get it. Now we come to what we can't get out of our head. Mike, what is it for you this week?
2: So we've touched on the economic and political crisis in the UK and I feel like you can't really live in the UK. I don't know how you can get by without just injecting Marina Hyde's column into your veins every (laughs) Saturday to just keep you going until the next week. She's very funny. But the bit I really liked out of last week's column about Liz Truss... Was how a lot of commentators in the UK had been droning on about how you underestimate Liz Truss at your peril. Don't underestimate Liz Truss, we keep hearing. And yet, why not? It saves time. <laughs> <laughs> I underestimated her. And you know what? I still overestimated her. <laughs> So, yeah. Oh, she's I, such a, a brilliant a ter- writer. A, apologies to all our friends in the UK for how terrible things are, but at least you have that. <laughs>
1: And Lenore, what was it for you? Well, so Mike and I usually choose different things, but this week we've chosen pretty much the same thing. I think sketches are the only way that I can really consume a lot of news about the Truss government in the UK at the moment. Mm. Um, I love Marina Hyde also. And I also really enjoyed John Crace's sketch on Thursday about Liz Truss's speech at the Tory party conference, where she entered to M Peoples moving on up. No, really, she did. And then... (laughs) (laughs) They asked her not to. And and then she had this old that old line, I have three priorities, growth, growth mm-hmm. and growth, oh. which most of the British press picked up on was exactly <laughs> the same line that Keir Starmer, the Labor leader, said in a speech during summer. Personally, I think that whole trope should be dropped by politicians. You know, Scott Morrison had three priorities, jobs, jobs and jobs. I think they should just stop. Mm. Anyway, I digress. I really like the fact that she pointed out in this speech that she was declaring war on the anti-growth coalition and that she left the stage, the pound lost 1% of its value (laughs) 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 and and two-year fixed-term mortgage rates hit 6%. And as John Crace said, it seemed the financial markets were also part of the anti-growth coalition. Anyway, I think uh, John Crace and Marina Hyde and other sketch writers are the best way to consume UK news at the moment because it is just so insane.
2: Yeah, Bank of England and large parts of the Tory party also mm. in that anti-growth, anti-growth, <laughs> coalition. anti-growth
0: <laughs> coalition. yeah. I'd like to headline on John Crace's too: Liz Trust says nothing at all and says it really badly. <laughs> 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 um, okay, thank you so much for joining us today, Mike and Lenore. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Gabs. Thanks so much for listening. This episode was produced by Daniel Simo and Miles Herbert. Executive producers are me, Gabrielle Jackson, and Miles Martignoni. Full Story will actually be back in your feeds tomorrow with a preview of a full story special investigation into the defamation trial of the century. It's called Ben Robert Smith versus the Media. Listen up tomorrow, and we'll catch you again next week.